Hello, and welcome to Bada Boom. I'm Troy. On this episode, we have on Torpedo Comics, Steve Houston. Houston is an Overstreet Price Guy advisor, Pawn Stars resident comic book expert, and the host of his own podcast, Steve and Simono Say Boom. Steve shares his thoughts on the current climate of the comic book industry and market. We also chat about what sparked his passion for comics, what's like being a seller, and the future of the industry. Listen in, and bada boom! Hey Steve, how's it going? It is going excellent, so that's a pleasure to speak to you. Hey, it's great having you on. Thank you for giving us your time. I know you have a crazy amount of knowledge around comic books, like everything about you is it screams comic books and comic book history. So I'm curious to know, how did you get into comics in the first place? Well, um, it's amazing that the people realize that I got into comics later than I should have. Um, when I was very young, uh, my family moved to Africa, South Africa, and I had no access to comics or anything like that. There was no TV. It was a, a weird little life. I loved it. When I came back to England years later, I came back to England in 1977. Um, I didn't like the weather. It was raining and cold, and I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to go out and play. What am I going to do, you know? So I began drawing. I began getting interested in art. And slowly but surely, uh, as time moves on, I went to school, and I, went, I was going to go on a school trip when I was 12 years old. And I stayed over a friend's house because, you know, we were going to get the school coach, and he lived close. And I, said, I always remember it. His parents came in and said, okay, time for you guys to go to bed. Uh, turn the TV off. And I thought, ooh, okay, I'm not really tired. My uh, friend said, oh, no, 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 we're not going to go to sleep because I've got this hobby. And he pulled out this massive case from out under his bed, and it was full of comics. Just, it, I mean, it was a massive case. It was just full. And it was mainly filled with uh, English reprints. At the time, though, we had a, uh, an English weekly going for Marvel, the mighty world of Marvel and, and then Spider-Man and stuff like that. We had all sorts of odd titles as well, you know, including, you know, Tomb of Dracula and Planet of the Apes. And I was immediately mesmerized. I opened up the pages and he was like Yoda. And I was like this apprentice. I was like, who's this? Who's that? And what does he do? And he was giving me all this information. So that's 1980. At the time, uh, I grew up very poor, so I didn't have any money to buy comics or anything like that, and I didn't dare ask my mum because she would have slapped me. So it wasn't until uh, years later, it was 1983, it was the spring of 1983, and I was on another school trip, geography, the most boring trip you've ever imagined. And I was on a school coach, and all the, people, the other kids went off because they needed to go to the restroom, and I didn't. So I began to walk around the coach and look around, see if anyone had left anything behind. On the back seat was about four or five comics. Two of them I can remember to this day. One of them was Power Man and Iron Fist issue 101, and the other was ROM 44. But then the most important to me, and a comic I still have today, it was Conan issue 147. And I just picked it up, and I was like, God, what? Was that some sort of kids? Did they allow really young kids here or something? So I picked it up, started reading it. And that was the end of that previous existence. Because as soon as I opened up, I was like, oh, my word. This is brilliant. I read the comic like 15 times in a row. 
And I realized right there that all my other hobbies that I had at the time, I was into military vehicles and tanks and soldiers. All that went away. I said, this is going to be my new hobby. And I'm going to uh, read comics. And then I had the uh, unenviable task of working out where I was going to get these books, what was I going to read, and what, you know, I needed to find other people that read comics so they could guide me. And that was the spring of 1983. I know that feeling of like when you go into a friend's house or I, you see something and they introduce you to something that's like so cool or like, wow, you're like a kid in the candy shop. And every single time you get exposed to that, it's like that same feeling all over again. I got to have that feeling again recently when I moved to Las Vegas and I went into Torpedo and I was like, this is bigger than most of the comic books, uh, comic book shops I've been to my entire life. And kind of similar to you, I didn't get into comics until I was a little bit older. My family uh, grew up in a really small town. I grew up on a farm in the middle of nowhere. And I got Spider-Man Unlimited, number one, from my grandparents. And I... I read that so many times that like the first five pages in the front and the back were missing. And I was like, oh yeah, there's somewhere in my room. I'm keeping those nice because it's the cover. And I just, I knew every single panel by memory, but I got out of it just because like there wasn't a comic book shop in my town and my grandparents lived like two hours away and they bought that one for me. Every now and then they would give me one, but I was like, I couldn't really regularly do it. But you've been doing it for, for quite a long time now. So how do you have like this almost encyclopedic like knowledge of comic books? Well, I was very fortunate. Um, by 1983, of course, I, I have the interest. And I did find two people at my school who were into comics and they were my, you know, I was a pad one and they were like the teachers and they sent me straight. And one of the kids uh, advised me to pick up a book which changed my entire life, which was the Overstreet uh, Price Guide, which means that I was finally allowed to see uh, what had been published, who the publishers were, what they had published. It was incredible. I realized that I was going to be a Marvel reader. Um, I know I wasn't into Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman. I just wasn't into it. I knew that I was going to be Marvel. I just needed guidance. So, um, and I've told this story a couple of times, I got my pad and pen out and I wrote down every single, I just turned the page and wrote down every single Marvel title. And then, because I didn't have a computer, you know, this is way before computers, it's just pads and pens. Then I went through and separated them out by decade. And then I completely rewrote the list in chronological order. The amount of time I had as a youngster is astonishing. Um, and the sheer amount of dedication, I look back on that version of me, I wish that I had that type of focus now. I would be ruling the world. Now I had my list. And I was like, okay. And then I had to be taught what the Marvel Universe was. Because there were titles published by Marvel, but that weren't canon. You know, and I was like, oh, what is that title? You know? Is that, is that canon or is it not? Is it part of the Marvel Universe? Is Carl... Okay, Conan isn't. Okay, I had a lot to learn. Once I had that list, then uh, two, three other publications came out in uh, 1985, which set me on my path. It was the uh, official handbook of the Marvel Universe deluxe series. It was the official Marvel Universe 
to Amazing Spider-Man, and it was Marvel Saga, the official history of the Marvel Universe. Those three books allowed me to really get into the weeds of what Marvel was, the Marvel Universe, what titles, understanding the characters. Because at the time, I had a tiny little comic collection. It was tiny. And there I was reading this official handbook, which was giving me extensive histories. And of course, I'm, I mentioned it briefly earlier, and one of my previous hobbies had been uh, military vehicles. I was fascinated with tanks and military vehicles, and I'd gone about it the same way. I had hundreds of tomes of books and photographs, and I knew every single uh, country's vehicles. I worked out what era they came from. It's just the way my mind worked. So I wanted to use the same process with comics. And I was like, okay. I quickly discovered I had to start a Fantastic Four number one. I know that 1961 is the start of the Marvel Universe. You know, there was a little confusing period just before that with the, you know, the pre-hero monsters, which blew my mind. I was like, oh, is that Marvel or is it not? Drove me crazy in those years. But when it comes to the need to know everything, I have to give credit to the official uh, Marvel Index to The Amazing Spider-Man, which was written by a guy called... Mr. George Olszewski. And what he did was on the back of the book, and he had indexed like the first 25 issues of Amazing Spider-Man. On the back of the book, he had a list of terminologies where he explained what a flashback was, what continuity was, you know. Um, and it was eye-opening. And then I realized the sheer power of the Marvel Universe. And it was in 1985, I came up with the most grandiose thought ever. <laughs> I said, I'm going to collect every single Marvel Universe comic. I want all the pieces together. And hence, I put on my Marvel zombie hat. I didn't read anyone else. I had, had a little dalliance with DC for about a year. I stopped every other reading. And then I just dove right up to my neck. And I said, I am going to buy every single Marvel comic that is related to the universe and is canon. Oh my gosh. You know, I know we have a great voice actor playing the Watcher right now and what if, but if they ever need someone else, I feel like you've seen it all <laughs> for when it comes to Marvel. Like, I see there's plenty of boxes behind you, and I'm sure the only thing that's in those is just Marvel comics. Yes, it is. Yes, it's, uh, <laughs> I have, uh, I don't have as many books as I used to, um, but once the reprints and hardcovers and omnibuses came out, especially the uh, Marvel Masterworks, and including all the other books I have, I have basically right now access to every single Marvel story from 1961 up to 2000. Wow. Oh, I mean, you've got your own shop kind of in your house. Yes. Again, I, I thought of it as a reference library because after a couple of years, the Marvel Index ended. And as a young man with no computer, I had decided that I was going to be the next person to continue on with the indexing of the Marvel Universe. And I was like, before I can do that, I have to have a complete set. I have to read, I have to understand and, and, and understand everything. So I had to start buying titles and characters that I weren't really interested in, but they fit within the Marvel Universe. And it's really odd. Uh, out of all of my friends, out of everyone I know, I was the only one who attacked it that way. Uh, for me, building in the runs, just filling in the runs uh, was essential and filling in the bits and pieces. 
of course, I hit the problem of money uh, because as soon as I got back to a certain area, it was like, oh, what's that? That's a, that's a, that's expensive. But my real Marvel ascendance began when I moved to the USA. Many, many years ago when I was in the Army, I did a, a live firing exercise in Canada. We had four days R&R, and I went to Calgary. And that was the first time I'd seen a real comic shop. It was three times the size of my little tiny comic shop in England. It had massive amounts of back issues. I'd never seen that many back issues. And the man behind the counter, such a nice man, he saw that I was just wide-eyed, and he goes, he goes, yeah, this is pretty good, because if, but if you like comics, you've got to go to America. You have got to go and experience it, because that's where comics were born, and that's the, that's the home of comics. So in May of 1986, I decided that at some point I am going to go and live in America. By the way, that's, <laughs> that's much harder than you could possibly imagine. You can't just get up and come over here, okay? Years and years and years and years. I finally got over here in June of 1991. I finally got over here. And after I had got settled down a little bit, then I began to seriously purchase, because that's what I had never been exposed to so many issues at a good price range. Uh, 50 cents, 25 cents, I was buying everything. You name it. Titles like, you know, Shana the She-Devil, Marvel 2-in-1, you know, uh, all these obscure stuff, all the magazines, you know, Tomb of Dracula, Vampire Lives, all the graphic novels, everything. Uh, and um, I got my first computer in uh, 1992, and then I was off to the races. And then I started to say, you know, start input information. And, uh, you know, I would have to say that I was probably... You can't designate me as a nerd. I had to be something worse than that, something something that hasn't been seen since. And I, I know some friends of mine that I still know that remind me of that time. And they're like, they had never seen anyone as driven as me. And so instead of going out to parties and doing stuff like that, I was going off to comic shops, picking up issues, following my back issue list, doing my research. Hour after hour, week after week, year after year, just completely focused on the Marvel Universe. And that's the only way that you can shove all that stuff into your brain. Just you have to keep reading it, filling in the gaps. Yeah, it's like it very much is your life. Comics, the Marvel Universe, everything part of that is a big piece of who you are. What was it kind of like? during the pandemic when the shops closed down and people were kind of transitioning a lot of stuff towards uh, selling things on Instagram Live. I know our my co-host, Chris, he actually bought a couple of things from you uh, during the pandemic through Instagram Live. But what was that transition like for you? Well, we were very lucky at Torpedo. As soon as the lockdowns began, a lot of the comic shops in our area completely closed down and laid off all their people. Our owner, John, he came in and he called a meeting and he said, I don't want to lay anyone off. He said, if someone can come up with something that we can do to still keep bringing the money in as if we were open, as if the doors were open, 
I will work with you and not one single person will be laid off. At the time, there was a lot of people panicking. A lot of business people were panicking. And to have a clear-headed voice like that just say, guys, relax. Give me a proposal. And then we, I will work with you. One of our employees, who was a little bit more advanced at that time, said, why don't we sell stuff on Instagram, on, on a claim set? And the rest of the employees were like, what is that? So he told us what it was. And he goes, look, you know, there's a community out there of people. We go into a chat room. We have a claim sale. We just put, you know, some letters up. We put some books up. And then they can claim the books. And we're like, that's what we need to do? So um, we began to do that. Start off with just, you know, two shows a day maybe at one point. Um, and then we realized that there was a thirst. There was a need out there. A lot of people were at home. They were bored out of their brains. Their own comic shops had gone out. And amazingly enough, and this is a mystery to me, I still, at some point in, you know, 100 years, someone's going to be able to explain this to me. A lot of people had a lot of money. I don't know where that came from, but they did. And so they were, you know, we started putting bigger and bigger books up on our claim sales, and they were just turning. It was just like, wow. Then the problem came, where do we get new stuff without being allowed to go out and buy? Again, uh, me and John and a couple of other guys, we got together. We called up some of our fellow dealers and said, hey, you know, what are you doing? And they're like, well, we're not really doing anything. We're like, let us buy stuff from you. We would buy stuff from them. And, you know, slowly but surely, our claim sales increased more and more and more. The claim sales and the, the system that we were using and the pandemic changed Torpedo Comics forever. We had been in a little bubble by ourselves doing comic shows and selling stuff in Las Vegas. We didn't even, you know, have a store in LA or anything. And suddenly here we are, uh, uh, were exposed to a massive audience of people all over the country and the world, in fact. Uh, it was quite a thrilling time. So for us, you know, while there was a, a major amount of annoyances about the pandemic, when it came to business, and the way we managed to evolve and transform ourselves, you know, to take advantage of it, I tip my hat and I give all the credit to John on that for him not panicking and saying, guys, let's just, I'm, I'm going to send you all home. I'm done. He's definitely got to be a great boss to want to work and collaborate and, you know, keep his employees in a payable situation. I'm sure everyone that works at the shop, and I know especially you, you're all very passionate about what you do and to still be able to have the opportunity to have to let someone be able to let you share that passion and get books out to people during the pandemic that's got to be an opportunity that not many people had but is still an opportunity that is incredibly great for you guys to have because i know so many people who are just you know they, they don't want to go out they can't really spend time with their family but they got on some of the sales you guys had and they're like, hey, I get to not think about how bad things are in the world right now. And I'm just focused on trying to get this comic book or uh, I've had this big collection. And now's a weird opportunity where I can really dive in and see how can I fulfill my like five, six year long dream of finishing this collection. And for some people, 
the only or the best way they could do that was through some of the stuff that you all guys did at Torpedo during the pandemic. So I know, uh, I know Chris, I know a couple other people that are definitely grateful for the, the things that you guys were able to do during the pandemic. I'm curious to know though, during the pandemic, it definitely like the market kind of like went up because like you said, how did people have all this money <laughs> all of a sudden? Uh, and then it's kind of, I feel like, gone back down maybe a little bit less than it was before. And now it's kind of like maybe reestablished to where we were maybe back in 2018 or 2019. But what's it been like having the shift of, hey, now everybody wants stuff to like, okay, we're oversaturated to maybe we're back to where we were before. What's what's it like going through all those waves and where do you see the industry where it currently is and where it could be going? That's uh it's a load of questions. That's a fascinating question, and it's very relevant to today because I do have some major fears, and I've expressed them to John. Um, I have been through some amazing downturns. Um, I was working behind the the desk at the you know at the counter when in 1995, 1996, the entire industry crashed. I've been through that after the speculation boom of the early 90s. And I was left in a wasteland of businesses that had gone out, storage locations full of books, which were now worthless. And then again, I survived the other downturn we had in 2001, which was also, it was just awful. And then again, I survived the downturn that we had during the housing crisis of 2008, 2009 which was even worse. Um, the thing is, and this is something, you know, that maybe people who are listening to this, watching this, maybe uh, I'm going to hit some uh, little buttons here. Since 2005, we have been in the golden age of Marvel marketing, since the Iron Man movie. We have never had this amount of exposure. Most of our characters, Marvel and DC, have all been on something, cartoons, massive big movies. So many people know about our characters now. Civilians who would come in and go, yeah, yeah, I love Thanos. <laughs> A couple of years ago, it's like, if you had said Thanos, they go, oh, well, what does that mean? So the difference is, and this is the main problem, um, after all that exposure and billions of dollars of marketing in every platform that there is, we have not picked up any real readers. We've picked up a lot of people who are flipping, speculating, selling. Those people flooded the market during the pandemic. They were like, yes, they were spending hours on the computer finding out which character was supposed to come out in a certain film, what rumor, buying up all the issues, having them cleaned, pressed, sending them to CGC, and selling them on eBay or wherever. So our industry swelled with all these people who were purchasing and selling, and not one of them was reading. None of them. And I remember back at the time, I, was, I expressed some of this. Uh, I'm also, an, uh, I became an Overstreet comic book advisor years ago. And in some of my yearly reports, I would make notations and say, uh, guys, I'm a little worried right now that we, we don't have people coming in reading. 
We have people coming in and buying the variants, the one in 25, the one in 50, the one in 100, the one in 5,000. And that's all they do it. And for a while there, they had that golden era during the pandemic when they were getting anything that they wanted for their product. So some of them were like, well, you know, I can, I don't have to go to school. I was going to go to school to be a dentist. I don't have to do that anymore. I'm just going to buy and sell comics. This is great. Well, obviously, you know, they're not long in the tooth like I am. So they don't know it comes in cycles. And as soon as the hard times came along and all the, you know, the free money was taken away, uh, reality set in. And because they're not actually interested in reading or following the universe, they went away. So now we're just left with that small core of people who are actually collecting, and it's a minuscule amount of people. It really is. And, you know, when we do a, a live sale today, you know, some of those people that I know, I've known them for years, but generally speaking, they're of a certain age group, you know, this sort of mature, uh, but we, I would have to say conservatively, we at Torpedo lost 65% of the people who were purchasing from us during the pandemic. So, yeah, that's, that's called pull up your bootstraps and find other things to do. Um, but it's very sad. And it, I know it's a big, wide, controversial thing to say. And many people here would probably be thinking, well, uh, that's, you know, that's hearsay. What's the validation? The validation is, is that, you know, I'm in the comic shop sometimes. I can go in there and I can talk to people. I also see how much we're ordering of each issue. I see the numbers. And I'm like, wow, you're only ordering that many of X-Men? You're only ordering that many of Amazing Spider-Man? That's why they reboot their titles every, you know, three or four years. And they have 5,000 different variants. So they can make some money. The stories are not selling the books anymore. The variants are selling it. And here's the thing. I'm not saying that we should have no more variants because if we don't have any more variants, there is no industry. We're done. I know it's probably another controversial thing to say, and some people are probably going to be howling when they hear that. But we need the variants right now to keep this industry alive. I guarantee you, they took all the variants away today. By next week or the week after, comic shops would start closing. By the hundred. By the thousand. Why? There isn't anyone else like me coming up with that need to buy entire universes, reading, getting involved in the characters. The people who are coming in now are either a speculator or they may, they may buy one or two books a month. And that's it. You know, there is a lot of stuff going on right now, which is very scary. And uh, I must admit, when I peer into the future as best I can, I see like a little bit of fog. And I'm like, I'm, I, I don't know where we're going. I don't know where we're going. But both Marvel and DC are in trouble right now. And luckily enough, we have a vibrant, independent image scene. The uh, creators are coming in and doing their best work. And some people can come in and say, I'm following this book. But they're not building universes anymore. They're just building a single character. So they'll, they'll follow the one book. You know, Invincible doesn't have 25 books covering the whole universe. It's just Invincible. Yeah. Whereas back in the old days, people would build universes. And then sales would garner and there'd be more interest. Well, that aren't doing that anymore. You know, 
But there's people out there that do have a whole room full of variants. And they're very happy with it. So I know that does sound a little bit, uh, you know, downbeat, but that's that's my opinion down here in the trenches. I mean, I, I do think that's an important thing to say, because if there is anything that's going to have a wake-up call, uh, you don't want it to be a surprise moment where you hear all your favorite stories are now getting canceled. And you want to have enough warning or be like, hey, you know, what if this happens? I think this is happening. You know, sometimes you need that voice of uh, pessimism to say, hey, what if it goes wrong? Here's what it could happen. You know, we should maybe try and course correct a couple of things. And I think you are absolutely right. We have definitely seen things go in cycles, definitely like in the comic and book industry. And, and you know that way more than I do. But even if I were just to look at like the Marvel franchise of, of movies, the MCU, I, you know, they're kind of going into downfall right now. And sometimes when those movies do really well, there's a lot more people going into comic book shops. I remember back in, I think it was 2015, 2016, they were like starting to do a lot of the lead up into Infinity War. They just did Captain America 3. And everybody at my local comic book shop was saying, I really need to read X, Y, and Z to feel really prepared for what could happen because there's so many different ways they could take this. And when we don't have those that stories or those passions like in those movies, it doesn't really drive a lot of people into the comic book shops to, to see what those are. Or when the movies just aren't necessarily based on a solid comic book story, it's tough to say, well, I want to go read that story and see what it's actually like. Because I mean, when Robert Pattinson's Batman came out and people were like, oh yeah, it's part Long Halloween, it's part No Man's Land. People are like, whoa, I've only read Long Halloween. I need to go read these other three comics if they get into it. So uh, I'd be curious to know, there's a healthy amount of concern. What would you recommend to to listeners to try and course correct um, what might be going on in the industry or how can we continue to have a great aspect of comics and in, in, in pop culture uh, or, and maybe even get back to that kind of feeling that I experienced at least after I saw Captain America. And I was like, wow, I've got to read all these books and see what's going to happen for the next movies. What, what can we do? Well, again, a, a great question, which sort of could open up Pandora's box. Um, but we have to rely on what the publishers and the companies are doing, unfortunately. Uh, Us as fans, you know, we don't really have that much power, but it takes a long time for them to realize that, wait a minute, they're not buying anymore. Our sales have gone down, okay? And of course, with these huge multi, uh, you know, octopus level, corporations that are now in control of Marvel and DC, the comic divisions are basically lost leaders. You know, they're like, well, you know, we don't care if this book only gets printed 11,000 copies a month. You know, it's a lost leader for them. They're just going to keep that going. But I think we have had about 10 years of creators coming into both Marvel and DC 
who don't actually like Marvel and DC or superheroes. They've come into the industry and they've been telling us that there's always been something wrong with our superheroes and our universes, and they've come along to fix it. Slowly but surely, these people, you know, they may have worked in other arenas, okay? They may have worked at Starbucks. They may have been a community, you know, uh, organizer. But when they come along on a title, they're not coming along on a title saying, wow, I read this book for 20 years. I have been waiting. I have 25 subplots that haven't been finished. Or you wait till they see. I'm going to go in and see the editor. I'm going to pitch these ideas. And the editor's like, wow, you really know your stuff. Yes, I know. I've been, I've been following this stuff for 20 years. These are questions here that haven't been answered. You've been too busy. Okay, I want to do it in my next thing. That doesn't exist anymore. People are running away from continuity. People are coming into the industry, uh, specifically at Marvel and DC, less so with your independent books and image. They don't have to do this. But at Marvel and DC, which, come on now, it's the bread and butter of, of everything. They're coming in and they're saying, I hate Captain America, but I'm going to write it because I think I'm going to fix it. So what does that do? They may appeal to the five people in the world that have been waiting for that person to do what he's doing. And then the rest of us were like, oh, I didn't think there was anything wrong with Steve Rogers. I didn't think, I mean, I've been following Captain America for 15 years or 20 years. And suddenly, you know, now what happens is that person just goes to the comic shop and says, can you pull me off the subscription list, please? And then that's it. They fade away. They're gone. Um, and that is happening again and again and again. Uh, the creators... And editors, right now, over at Marvel and DC, seem to be overly bothered by aspects of the comic industry which they shouldn't be. They're trying to appeal to a tiny little audience of people. The funny thing is, is that this also holds true for the MCU. I remember when the first Avengers movie came out. I went to the cinema. And I walked outside, and people were hanging. They didn't go. They were hanging around talking. I had never felt that atmosphere before. So much questions, and people were like, whoa, this is incredible. Civilians just dressed up, you know, as uh, superheroes. And I was like, oh, have you, ever, have you ever read a comic before? No, I love this. That moment has gone. It's gone. Now the films that we're getting... They be, they're telling us a certain message that they want to get across, but it's not very entertaining. And so we're not going to see the movies. And so basically, phase four and five, whatever it is, you know, I'm sure you'll agree. Everyone's just like, oh, okay. You know, we've had, a, you know, the, the last Spider-Man movie was actually very good, you know, because it used past continuity, past actors, brought back the nostalgia, and people are like, oh, yeah, <laughs> I love Tobey Maguire. And by the way, um, when I was in the cinema watching that film, I have, I have never experienced the happiness that was permeating from behind me when I was watching it as each actor came out as the Spidey. I could hear, oh, I could hear, wow, these people are really excited. It's a, it's a tough thing to do in some ways, and then it's easy in others. First things first, don't disrespect your continuity in history. Don't take it that anything that you've done in the past is bad. And why is it bad? Because someone came into the industry that never read comics, never had any enthusiasm for it, and through unfortunate means, because of 
unscrupulous editors has been put in the position where they can now write whatever they want to do. They're not bothered with continuity. They've only read three or four issues before. You know? That hurts. That destroys sales. And that means that people like me leave. And people like me of my age, we have the power to buy both universes every week if we want to. All the issues. If they were doing it, I could, I could follow all the Batmans. I could follow all the Avengers. I could do it all. I can afford to do it. But they're not appealing to me. They're appealing to an audience that maybe has enough money to buy two books a month. And then they sit there in their offices, smiling, saying, we've done a good job. This issue told a story that we want to tell. And then the accountants tell them that they've just lost a lot of money and they have no answer for it and they don't care because they're getting paid anyway. I have multiple problems with that, including the fact that I have friends, dealers that have been in this business for a long time that have worked millions of hours in their store over the weekends, at night, late, building and building. It could all be taken away by an elite group of people who don't care about comics, don't care about anything, don't know anything about sales. All they care about is, you know, as long as their point of view is done. Again, that is probably another very controversial thing that I've just said. And a lot of people right now are either pulling their hair out or they're nodding and going, oh, my word, I, I, I think I see where, where he's going. I'm just bringing you that point of view from someone that has been a dealer, retailer, since 1993. I've seen almost everything. And um, I know how to save this industry. It's just that there isn't the will to do it. There, there's a lot of things that are beyond an individual's control. And, you know, it takes a collective sometimes to do that. And like you said, when something doesn't sell and there's a bigger problem, then someone's probably going to say, hey, maybe we should take a look at trying to fix this. We recently had on Jeff Johns, and he talked about Ghost Machine and how a lot of what he says, it sounds like it's the solution to what you have kind of described. So, you know, he wants to do, he's got, it's all creator owned. It's going to be several different universes, several different tiles inside all of it. Do you think something like that is the solution to get people back into comics and get more into characters? I know it's not Marvel or DC. It's like their own characters, but that's, that sounds a lot of what you would describe as the solution. You know, it's a, that is a very valid point. And it's interesting. I was actually having a conversation about uh, Ghost Machine with one of my fellow employees earlier on today. This is incredible. Um, yes, I do believe that this is the way to go. Uh, it's not a huge, massive corporate structure where plot lines are being sent down by memo via HR. He has gathered creators that want to create without being bothered, annoyed, or interfered with. And I do know of certain writers that have worked for Marvel and DC, and they have to write to certain edicts in their stories. That there is creative suicide. You have to allow these creators to do what they want to do. Now, if someone wants to go off and do something amazingly controversial, let them go off and do it. The, the market will let you know whether it's good. 
But we have an example of success right now. Manga is massive. It outsells everything. Why? If it's a manga that is an action-based book, you get everything you want. It's the same way it's been for 20 years. Incredibly powerful characters, power, buildings, universes, planets exploding. You get everything you want to in there. You know? And youngsters and teenagers and older people, they're like, yeah, I love that. And it's the, they have their template. When you're reading a, an action book like that, you expect a certain thing from your characters. You want your guys flying up into space, gathering power. You know, maybe they have a fist that can punch through, uh, you know, planets. Yes, you like that. And it builds this and everyone's happy. There isn't any controversy. They didn't get an edict from downstairs saying, oh, we want you to change the main character because right now it's, it's good that we, you know, we need to push this agenda. And everyone goes, oh, okay, so the character's not going to do that anymore? No, because we, we, we don't think that's a good idea. That's what's been happening with American superheroes while the manga books have been thriving. You just go into a bookstore and take a look at the size of the manga uh, libraries of, of books, graphic novels. It goes on forever. That's what's happening in American superheroes. So what Jeff Johns has done, which is very, very brave, you know, because he has a nice cushy job there at DC with just money pouring in, lots of experience. He can see that his creative need is being stifled by corporate HR memo typewriting. And he's like, I, I need to free up people. And you can probably imagine, I can't say for sure, but you can probably imagine that in his pitch to people that he wants to come and work with him, he's basically saying, guys, come on over. You can create what you want to create. I'm not going to give you any edicts. Create what you want to create. Be free. I don't think there's anything more valuable to a creator to be unchained so that they can go, I've been waiting 20 years. I was never allowed to do this at Marvel or DC. Here I am. If it fails, it fails. But they had the ability to try. That's the sort of thing that happened at Marvel in the early 1970s. Lucky enough, you had an editor-in-chief who was extremely um, outgoing and willing to try anything, Mr. Roy Thomas. And he had some real mavericks working under him, you know, people who spent a lot of their time doing this. But when they came along to the creative aspect, they created gold. And Marvel was able to go from that Silver Age into the Bronze. And all those Bronze Age characters and storylines, you know, stuff like Man-Thing and Deathlock and Howard the Duck, that would never have been allowed today. Never. Someone would go, you know, you're not going to publish a book about a duck talking like that. No, 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 no. you know, you're not going to do that. You know, um, that atmosphere is gone. And I've been very fortunate to speak with Roy Thomas many times. And I've spoken with Jim Shooter. I've spoken with Tom DeFalco. I've spoken with guys who were right there at the pinnacle of power. They all know what's missing. And what Jeff Johns has done is said, I'm going to reclaim that creative fire, that aspect. And to do that, I have to unchain these people from that corporate memo. Let them go. And now, <laughs> let's see what they can create. 
I mean, I can't wait to see what what Jeff Johns comes up with in Ghost Machine. I know Geiger Ground Zero came out today, and he's got a couple other books that were coming out before uh, they formed Ghost Machines, and those are both good. Uh, but it's a it's a new page in the comic book industry in the next coming years, and it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Yes. But on a lighter note, um, I'm curious to know what's your favorite thing about working at a comic book shop when I was in college or in different parts of my life, I'm always like, Hey, you know, this is a hobby I have. I really would like to do this full time. And clearest path I see to it is working at a comic book shop or working at working at where their shop sells, whatever I'm the most passionate about for that moment. Uh, but what is your favorite thing about working at a comic book shop? Again, another great question. And it's very important because without passion, life can become quite miserable. I still have a lot of passion for my business and for my and the characters and the, and the stuff that I grew up with. Now, I don't work in the actual store anymore day to day, but I do my live sales and I monitor back issue sales. And I still get a thrill when I'm in the store and I'm doing some inventory and I hear people over, you know, I can hear them talking and I'll see them, you know, I get really excited when they bring out a list. <laughs> if they bring out a list and put it on the thing and I'm thinking, oh, he's got a list. He's missing issues. I wonder what he's, I wonder what he's putting together. And then I'll hang around just a little bit. I don't want to put any pressure. I'll hang around a little bit and then I'll wait for a question. You know, that's one aspect. Even better is when someone says to me, I've been reading this stuff for years, la, 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 this title, this title, this title. Let's say, for example, oh, I've read all the Silver Surfers, you know, um, I read all the Warlocks. I think I'm pretty up to date on all my cosmic stuff. I'm, I'm really good. There's nothing better than being able to suggest something else that they can read that you like yourself. So in that, I've done this many times, and I'll say to people, um, you may have not heard of this book. Did you ever read a book called Quasar? They're like, oh, I, I didn't think there was anything interesting going in it. And I'll go, ah, let's go to the box. Okay, here's the first issue. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you an incredible discount on the book, this first one. If you don't like this, come on back, and we'll try something else. But I'm staking my reputation on this. Boom. When that person comes back and says, I need the entire run, I get a thrill. And it, it's like a flush through my entire body. And it's essential for me, for someone of my age that's been working in this industry and working on the floor, making sales, it's essential that I get that feeling, that flush. It keeps me young. It keeps me passionate. And I, it really is the thrill of my life when someone says, I never thought that this would be interesting. Steve, that book was brilliant. What else is there? That's a lot of power that I have in my hand. I go, ah, oh, let's go over to this box now. Have you seen this? Oh, no. Let's try to do this again. And you keep going. Someone else comes in. That there is the thrill. The biggest thrill for me in, in comics. I can definitely see, like, the energy and that passion. When I first walked into Torpedo and I saw you doing a live sale in person, I was like, man, I bet he's kind of like this on camera. But even when the camera turns off, you're still just as energetic and just as passionate to 
try and make a great recommendation or try and just share your love for comics with uh, anyone else in the store or anyone that's around there to listen. So I definitely think we need more people like you in life because there, there are plenty of people that are, you know, they're passionate about music, they're passionate about sports, but there's someone that got them into that passion. And it'd be great if we had one of you in every single comic shop in the entire world and probably also a public library, because I know there's lots of people that go to public libraries to get whatever they kind of can. So I definitely uh, I want to say thank you so much for your time. We've appreciated you being on. Uh, I'm excited for everyone to hear more from you and see what else they can kind of learn from you. Where can they find you on social media? Well, I, my main site is Steve Says Boom. Um, that there is the site that is, you know, sort of joined half and half to Torpedo, but it is mine. I have about almost 3,000 people on there now, all super high-level comic fans, and it's a way for you to communicate directly with me. It's also the place where I put up promos and stuff. You know, if, I, if I'm in the mood to post something about something, that's where I'm going to post it. Steve says boom. Awesome. Well, Steve, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate your time. And with that, bada boom. Bada boom. Thank you for listening to the Bada Boom podcast. Keep the conversation going on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. Get in the comments on our YouTube channel and let us know what you'd like to hear next. And please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen. 